You are listening to the Photo Bomb podcast with the world's greatest photographers, Boo Ray and Gary. Welcome to the Photo Bomb podcast. My name is Boo Ray Perry, and joining me as always is Gary Hughes. Good afternoon. Hey, we are. Uh, we have so much to do today on this podcast. I'm so very excited yes. about uh, the show today. Uh, Has anyone who's intro to podcast ever not been excited about it? I've noticed that that happens on every podcast I listen to, especially when there's a guest. Like, I am so excited. I think every podcast host needs to buy a thesaurus and look up excited. It would be so wonderful would you- if just once they were like, I really don't want to be doing the podcast today, <laughs> but we're going to go ahead and do it anyway. I got a parking ticket uh, and I stepped in a puddle. It is the worst day. Got in a big fight with my wife. My daughter peed on the floor, and right. I'm just doing this because I have to. I'm phoning it in. Yes, and the bad thing is my daughter is 24. So the um, <laughs> thing that we wanted to talk about right off the bat before we get to our guest, because you mentioned this uh, before we started, you said it's a great lead-in to our guests, and it absolutely so. is, is that uh, the big breaking story this uh, week is the new check-in procedures for photographers at the airport, right? Well, it's not just photographers. It's all Let me read a little bit. I've got an article up right now from The Verge, and they are really good at being snarky about the facts, but their facts are pretty solid. Uh, Here it is. It's the the first paragraph, which I love. It says, The Transportation Security Administration, the only line of defense between us and an influx of satanic fidget spinners, just announced new airport screening policies that are designed to make your life a living hell. The TSA will now require, quote, all electronics larger than a cell phone, end quote, to be removed from carry-on bags, and placed in their own separate bin for x-ray screening with nothing on top or below, similar to how laptops have been screened for years. So basically, uh, for those of us who travel a lot with our cameras, uh, it's going to get a little uh, more difficult to get through security, uh, more of a pain in the butt. And I, when I travel and when I shoot and when I'm teaching, I'm usually with my wife and my daughter, and we already have a circus caravan of like 32 gray bins and a stroller going through. So this, as soon as I read this news story, the first thing I did was I went over and I signed up for TSA PreCheck. I was like, fine, take my $85. I really don't want to deal with this crap. So now I get, I'm going to get to leave my shoes on and my laptop in the bag. I get to leave a light jacket on, not that I ever need one in Florida. And uh, I think that's going to make my life a little bit easier. But um, I... I can't be mad at security measures too much. I mean, especially when there's an $85 way to never have to do the thing. Like, I'm pretty okay with it. Well, the thing I'm always surprised that they don't ask you to do stuff like that more often. Because when you – have you ever seen what a a bag of electronics looks like going through the frigging scanner? I don't know how the people looking at the scanner can (laughs) tell anything. It's like a plate of spaghetti. I don't know know how they can tell anything looking at that anyway. So I'm I'm really surprised that this hasn't happened earlier. I I think that's the point. And people were freaking out about there's going to be a laptop ban and there wasn't a laptop ban um no. coming and i and i think that the idea is i'm just going to assume that um in situations like this that the people who run the government that make sure that our planes don't blow up in the sky pretty much they do a great job of that like almost 100 percent of the time uh that they have some information about security that i don't and so just so that i know that me and my family are are going to be less likely to explode in midair i'm going to go ahead and just take my yeah. camera out of the bag that's good advice i'm going to get to the airport advice. about about 15 minutes earlier and i'm going to be a patriot and i'm going to go through security and not complain because you know who has it worse the security guards for the tsa who have to listen to people complain about them the entire day and there this is, is no joke life. by the way no joke they haven't heard 
So don't yeah, even nothing. don't don't even try to be cute or funny. Just go through and smile and, and move on. And if you're a, if you're a TSA agent long enough, your mind warps and then you become the comedian. You ever get the comedic TSA agent? No, <laughs> they're always no. there's one in every airport where they're like they're it's like they're on stage performing, trying to make it really, really amusing. And I appreciate the effort, but I usually fly at like 8 o'clock in the morning. I just really want to be quiet right. and drink my coffee. All right, I listen, think that's what we all really want. Let's talk to a guy uh, today who, what, what, do you, what do you say the odds are that he is uh, TSA pre-check qualified? I'm going to go ahead and say he's not TSA pre-check. I'm going to go ahead and say that he spent the extra 15 bucks on global entry. Global entry. Oh, that's another thing. Global. Oh, that's an, that's an, besides, that's another level I wasn't aware it's of. It's like pre-check in a bunch of other qualifying countries. So yeah, it's the I'm same gonna, thing as, yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's a know, bet. Yeah, that's like a bet Germany, I'm not going to take. I'm, there's no way I'm taking the bet against him not being uh, pre-check qualified. <laughs> Our guest today on the show, uh, Jim Richardson, uh, who is a nationally renowned photographer who has been working and shooting uh, for National Geographic for years. Uh, he has uh, published a, a lot of work that's fantastic. He has a book, a photo essay book called, I believe, High School USA. He'll correct me if I'm wrong about that. Uh, that is considered by many a classic uh, of uh, small town uh, Kansas high school life. Uh, just incredible photography. And the reason we're having on the show today is because of something that we brought up last week on the show. But let's first say hello to Jim Richardson. Hi, Jim. Thanks for coming on the show. Hi, how are you guys today? We uh, are so, so happy that you came on the show. We joked last uh, week. We are also the, excited. On the, excited. on the podcast, we were like, we're going to contact this guy, and there's no chance in hell he's going to bother to take any time out of his day to be on the podcast. And you were so gracious to uh, bother to come on the show. We really appreciate it. I can't believe just everybody isn't lining up to talk to you guys. Well, <laughs> I can't either. Isn't there a way Says a guy... Says a guy who I absolutely guarantee you had never heard of us until Gary contacted him <laughs> via email. That's graciousness right now. That's how you get a job, ladies and gentlemen, is that sort of uh, gravitas. Yeah. All, all you got to do is ask because, you know, you got back to me pretty quick. Uh, so I'm wondering, Jim, um, it, are, do you have not much going on when you're not on assignment where you can do really lame stuff like be on our podcast? Well, no, I just uh, heard last week about this new thing called the Internet, and I figured I better get involved. <laughs> <laughs> Going to be making the switch to digital cameras soon, are you? They can send pictures over the internet, I hear now. Wow. Oh, that's wow. fantastic. Pretty amazing, wow. huh? All right, we, yeah. we have so many uh, so many questions that uh, we want to ask you. And, and for, those, for our listeners, yes, we will be getting to the questions that everyone wants to know, which, Jim, I'm sure you are so sick of getting all the time. Because if you go to Jim's website and you look at his frequently asked questions – Every single question is about how do I become a photographer for Nat Geo? Every, every single question. <laughs> I'm sure he gets that all the time. So we'll talk about that in a second. But what I really wanted to talk to you about was uh, looking at the story that you did. And it's on our Facebook page, by the way. Go to Facebook uh, and uh, look for uh, Photobomb Podcast. We link to the story in Nat Geo. Uh, the wonderful uh, story that was done on the moors in Scotland and the incredible photography that you did. And in one of the photos, several of the photographs, but one in particular, which was a shot that uh, you had taken of several hunters around a down stag and they had their horses there, uh, just beautiful. And uh, it said in the caption that it was a composited image of six images. And I immediately began to wonder, what does that mean in the world of Nat Geo? Because I know that I know that Nat Geo's got, I know there's got to be some rules for what you can and can't do as a photographer, right? Right, right. Exactly. So, so what does that mean? What can you do? What can't you do? And when it says it's composited, 
you know, Gary suggested that maybe one of the horses was smoking and you had to change him out for another horse. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so what does that mean in a photograph like that? Well, in, uh, we've always been, uh, you know, we're in the nonfiction photography business. You know, uh, right? You know, the, the 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 idea is essentially that you know, people can trust what they see, and so that has meant various things at various times. You know, uh, harking back as a as a stage setter for this, you know, early on when it was a Cytex machine, that was the predecessor of Photoshop. You know, and uh, and apparently National Geographic, we had this wonderful picture of the pyramids that we thought would be great on the cover, and. Uh, um, and but it didn't quite fit a vertical format, so so somebody got the bright idea just scooting the pyramid over a little bit, you know. And <laughs> I uh, remember this; it was a big story. It was a big, it, like in the photography world, it was kind of a scandal. Go. It, it was. It got out, and <laughs> yeah, it kind of got around a little bit. Yeah. Uh, so forever after, anybody, anytime anybody wanted to do a story on uh, digital manipulation uh, and fakery. You know, it was the National <laughs> Geographic moving the pyramids. That was a nice, handy phrase, you know, and and uh, you got it. You know, everybody got it really quickly about what the heck had happened, you know. Uh, and nobody thought it was okay. You see, that's, that's the main thing. Right. That seems to th- cross some threshold. So ever since then, we've had to be sort of extra scrupulous. and But it changes somewhat over time. So, for instance... Uh, initially, when we started doing some of those multiple picture panoramas, sometimes they were actually shot on film. Like David Burnett did one on 4x5, and it was actually three or four sheets of 4x5 film, which were laid over on top of each other into one image, but you could still see the edges. So you, you, okay. knew, mm. you knew what was going on, okay? And then jump forward to about 2005, in which I did a... A, a nighttime panorama of the night sky with the Milky Way in it. And we still felt, in 2005, we felt that we couldn't digitally overlap those. We couldn't put it into Photoshop and have it do a merge, you know, and, right. and obliterate the lines. So we, we stitch it together, uh, but we leave the line showing and say in the caption... This is several images. This is a, okay. Yeah. Okay. So that so that people aren't deceived. Okay. Fast forward now to ten years later, 2015. Well, 2017. We're running the running the story, and it it does seem to be that people kind of know what you're doing now. If you and, and but we still feel we need to tell them. We need to tell them, particularly on a picture like that. You see, in which. You've got several elements in there, and you could be just kind of picking and choosing which picture you use for each bit of the frame. You know, right. you, you, know you could wait till the horse turns its head, or you could wait till the guy on the left, you know, is standing just so, you know, and, uh, and, and pick and choose your images that you build this picture out of. So you still have this kind of thing where you, you kind of need to let people know what's going on so that they don't feel deceived. Because if it gets out later... And they feel deceived. There's hell to pay. Well, so what's the in that particular image? What was it that you did in that image in that story? 
that made it a composite. Okay, so what I was doing is I was shooting with a 50mm f1.4 lens. I hope you guys don't mind, uh, mind uh, get gear talk here. Oh, we want yeah, quick question. Talk. Actually, before you answer this question, I have this on my list to ask you just to satisfy everyone. Right, right. So, what camera do you shoot with primarily? Okay, so I'll get really down into the, the nuts and bolts here, okay? Uh, Please I sh- do. I shot that on a Nikon D800E with a, uh-huh. uh, with a 50F1.4 Sigma, the, the new art lens. Uh, Sigma guy. Yeah, Sigma. Well, they are wonderful lenses. So uh, uh, maybe Sigma will call me up after this show uh, airs. You know, <laughs> That's right. You tell them to call us up. We would could you, use would a sponsorship. You, yeah. Would you please send me some money, Sigma? Um, and, uh, but I was using that so I could shoot it at, at uh, F2. Actually, I think I shot that at F1.8 out there in the broad daylight. You see, they keep the, the depth of field really shallow. And then mm-hmm. I shot, uh, I think I shot that six frames across. And basically, the guys are just standing there, and, and I just very quickly pan across them shooting six frames from left to right. Uh, and vertical? Do, vertical yes, or horizontal? Shoot them vertical. Always shoot them right. vertical. Yeah. I overlap a bunch. And then, uh, but uh, I practice it enough that I can do that uh, in uh, very quickly. So I probably did those six frames in about a second and a half of just painting across that frame, stopping and shooting each one, so that it could then later be stitched together uh, into that panorama. And what you get is a wide, a wide format, kind of wide angle without distortion and with a very shallow depth of field mm. as if i'm looking at it now the, the three gentlemen who are in the forefront by the stag each one of them is in focus right. the gentleman in the back by the horse though he's still shallow and that's, that's right. a good that's almost 50 percent of the frame is that part so mm-hmm. when you were shooting there you obviously weren't refocusing on him i you're, wanted you're, yeah i wanted him to stay out of focus i wanted that so yeah I wanted to look that it would have looked like um, I wanted this photograph to hark back to what photographs looked like when they were shot with larger format cameras with uh, very shallow depth of field, and uh, and and that was that was part of the intent to make an image that didn't look really like a wide angle image, you know, modern. <laughs> I wanted no. It, it doesn't. You know what? You know my first thought when I look at it is it looks like a movie frame. You yeah. Know, it looks like it looks like a wide angle movie frame where there's no distortion. Right. Uh, and you know, but if you had tried to do this as one image, what do you think would have been? You know, to the viewer, if you had shot this as one image, what do you think would have been the main thing when you put them two side by side that a, that that a viewer would have said, "Oh, this image looks different because." Um, I think what you see when you see that is, say I had shot it with a uh, a 16 to 35 or a 24 to 70 or something like that, you know, um, you would never have gotten that shallow a depth of field. And two, you would have had that inevitable stretching out at the edges that, you know, we really don't particularly notice, but is there and it changes the way the photograph looks. And right. The wide angle lenses, too, are never as, so- as sharp. Uh, when right. you're shooting wide around the edges, especially when you shoot a shallow depth of field, most of those lenses will uh, 
they'll they they're not in their sharpest when they're <laughs> when when you're shooting wide open with them. Do you know what I mean? They lose a little bit of detail, and I think that a pretty clever way to do it. And I also think that in my next assignment where I need a wide shot, I'm gonna do yeah. I'm gonna do that. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, just looking at this image and talking about it, just it just absolutely is inspirational. I'm like, okay, where am I going soon that I can try this? And you shot this handheld. <laughs> Right, right. And I, I practice yeah. that quite a bit because there are many times, yes, I carry those, you know, those, those tripod gadgets that you can stick on there. And, and there, are, there are pictures in the, uh, in the story that were shot on uh, one of those devices. I use a, a, a really right stuff uh, tripod head, you know, that, so you can move the lens back over the nodal point. You'd get it all right and all that kind of stuff. But you still run into situations in which, say, you're out in a, in the water in a zodiac, and that tripod doesn't do you any good at all. There, there. I can't know. tell you how many times that happens to me. <laughs> uh, uh, that I'm, I'm shooting a wedding, and I have to be out in the water in a zodiac. There you go. Okay. <laughs> Jim, you have to understand your world is completely different than anybody else's world. You understand that, right? Uh, well, yeah. kind of, yeah. You know, I know. Jim is living that Oprah-style best life. He really is. Yeah, Jim's going to be like, it's like you know, okay, he's like, you know how the light reflects off of a yak. Yeah, or a llama. Much, yeah, you know, There's difference between a llama and a yak. You understand what I mean, yeah, right? It, 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 takes, it, takes, it takes different filters. Didn't you know that? Yes, yeah. I, I don't have the uh, yak-llama experience that you have, Jim. Uh, the, yeah, the picture is just amazing. Uh, just every, I love everything about it. Uh, but I was surprised I when, I saw, when I saw the, the composite of six images. Well, I love everything about every picture in this story and, and, yeah. and all of your work. I mean, I'm going to be effusive with the praise here. But, um, but, uh, but, but I did find it interesting because it, yeah. said it was composite. But mm-hmm. then we were saying yesterday, I said, but it's obvious that they're not going to town with Photoshop because, like, one of the hunters has a stain on his jacket. Uh, yeah. So the first thing I would have done was remove that stain. Yeah, you no, know, can't, uh, can't do that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so uh, all right, then. All is well in the world. It, it, and, you know. That's what I told you it was, Boure, in the first place. <laughs> you did. I told I you it was just a I panoramic. But, by, but, I couldn't, but I couldn't figure out why. And now he's explained it so perfectly well. I understand well, So now, now that we know, Jim, how that works, we thank you for your time. You you, <laughs> <laughs> we, just, we just wanted you to settle a bet for us. <laughs> got it. Got it. You know, so, uh, okay. But then this is handheld. This is handheld. You did this handheld. Yeah. Man. yeah. Yeah, oh, that's amazing. We're gonna definitely. We posted a link to that article on our Facebook page for any oh, listeners if yeah. you guys want to check that out. Um, some fantastic photography, and now we know how it was done. And I want to get a, a, to a listener question, and I thought this was really good. We we posted on our Facebook page. We had someone write in what I think is a really great question for you that's specific to what you do. Um, and this is from Regina Beeler, who says. I've always wondered how much of a photographer's own culture and conviction transfer into how they document others. Is it possible to go about it with a truly blank mind, or is it too tempting to go in with a predetermined ideal and create photographs to prove one's own conviction? Uh, yeah, both. <laughs> <laughs> like when you, you're sent to document something, uh-huh. um, do you go in in the mindset of a passive observer or do you sometimes go in with preconceived notions and have them totally blown away or shoot to prove your point? Also, does the are you told what the story – I mean, do you, do you get a bent on what this story is going to be when there's a separate writer? Because you've actually done some writing yourself. Um, right. Do you have a – are you kind of told this is the story we're going for to give you an idea of, 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 uh, of how you should color what you're shooting or, or no? Is it just totally well, – the, the the question that that she has brought up is is really primary to 
a whole lot of, of the debate about photojournalism today. Uh, I mean, it's, it's spot on. It really is. And it's something that I've wrestled with, with my whole career. So to, to start back, uh, Bure, with your question about how it happens. So a story, a story for National Geographic will start out with a story proposal. And this isn't a story. This isn't a proposal for the text. This is a proposal for what the story is is about. You know, okay. for in, for instance, the Scottish Moors and how uh, how the future of nature is up for debate in Scotland, as it is in many places around the world. Okay, so that could be the the um, the, the, the precept of it. You know, once that proposal is 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 approved. Then a photographer will be assigned, a writer will be assigned, maybe a map maker, who knows, you know. Um, and each of us will come up with a, a coverage proposal about what we're going to photograph, say, or what the writer's going to write about, um, and, and what we're going to learn. And at that point, we should have a pretty good idea of the, what the story is we're going after. In other words, I'm not going to get off the plane in Edinburgh and get a car from Arnold Clark and start driving, you know, uh, up into the Highlands and kind of see what I find, you know. No. Right. There, there, is, there is a story. There is a point uh, of this, and I do tons of research, probably one-to-one. If I had six weeks in the field, I would be doing six weeks of research back home before I ever go. And, wow. And trying to figure out, so what's the story? What are the issues? Where can I see it? I mean, that comes down to the basic kind of question of where am I going to go stand with a camera and what am I going to point the camera at that would say this? So if the story were the Colorado River and uh, the story is that, uh, uh, you know, the water comes from the, the high mountains in Colorado and it it uh, peters out in uh, the Arizona desert and it never makes it to the sea in Mexico, I'd want to be saying, where can I go in Mexico to see the end of the river? Oh, yeah, I would, I would absolutely know what I was looking for in that, in that okay. case. Okay, yes. And I'm, I'm going to be doing all the research I can to try and figure out where the heck that spot is uh, without wasting a whole lot of time. So, yeah, yeah. Um, the deeper question that she asked, though, was kind of: Do you go in with pre presuppositions, or are you are you trying to be totally objective? Uh, you know, and I think it's absolutely impossible. I'm one of the people who says it's impossible to be totally objective. I dismiss right. I dismiss that, and and I and I dismiss it for a number of reasons for the kind of stories I've done over the years. And I was thinking about it this morning, and. The phrase that I came up with it was kind of a curious thing, with it, but it's the kind of thing that a documentary photographer would do, you know, that, that you're going out and you're going to cover tent revivals, you know, uh, because you're covering, you know, the religion in America, you know. And what, right. I, what I want to say is you can't cover the tent revival unless you go inside the tent. You can't really understand what people are getting at unless you go be part of it. And uh, you'll never do the pictures that really say anything unless you understand their emotions and and what they're they're getting. This came, you know, you you saw my book on the high school USA, which is what thirty five years old now. This goes right. back a ways. I also did all this stuff on this little town of Cuba, Kansas. You know, so so yes, over time, 
I got into their lives. And I, I, I hook, line, and sinker. I became part of the community. I, I totally abandoned the objective. I don't mean I abandoned truth. I, I abandoned the idea that I was going to be a fly on the wall and not, you know, and somehow be able to make judgments about them without fully becoming invested in their lives and what they were going through and uh, uh, what, what the pictures could or should show. And so, but I'm very upfront about that. I say, hey, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm not a fly on the wall, folks. I'm, I've been, I've, I'm totally involved here. Uh, but I, I want those pictures to get at the at at these people's lives, their emotions, their value systems, their culture, uh, with deep roots. Yeah, that I, I do want that. Yeah, I love the I love the analogy. Uh, you've got to go inside the tent. I think that's a, a wonderful phrase uh, to sum up what you're what you're saying here. That's a yeah. wonderful analogy. Well, it, 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 it matters. And, and you see people who, who think they can be objective. Every once in a while, I get a, I get a, a request and somebody's doing a, a master's thesis and they want to know if you couldn't make documentary photography more truthful by adopting rules like you only shoot with a 35 millimeter lens and you never get closer than eight feet and you never do all these kinds of, of things, you know. And, and I think it's totally bogus. <laughs> I think I think right. I think I think all you do is is you do uh, sort of standoffish pictures that never say anything that's worth saying, you know. And I want I want somebody I can read a byline, I can I can see that these pictures are being done by Amy Vitali or George Steinmetz or Mike Yamashita, you know. And I know uh, that that they they go in that with that with 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 both honest hearts. Um, and the need to, to say something, you know, not to not to mealy mouth around, but I want them to really go there and experience and tell me something. Uh, well, Jim, I got a, a question on that because you seem like you get really emotionally involved in your work and in, in, in your story. <laughs> and I was wondering that if there was, over the, over the many years you've been doing this, is there anything in your mind that stands out as something that was just really, really difficult for you to document? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, when I was... Uh, uh, when I was photographing Cuba, Kansas, there um, I, I photographed uh, Doc McClaskey, and he had been the doctor there for 50 years. And uh, uh, I was there on the day that he retired, uh, after 52 years. You know, and these people were coming in, and there was there was one old farmer came in in overalls, and they kind of sat there and didn't say much to each other in uh, in. Uh, in Doc's office, and the old farmer says, Doc, he says, uh, I never doctored with nobody else. I won't know what to do. Oh, <laughs> and, uh, and, you're, and you're kind of standing there looking at it, you know, uh, through the viewfinder, and uh, and you're trying to stay on focus. And then he retires, and a month later he dies. And wow. and then you have this, uh, this whole outpouring, you know, and I've become totally invested in the... Uh, uh, so it's as much a... It's not. I, I I can't say that. I haven't been there for fifty years. It's not as much a loss for me as it is for them. But it's a loss for me, and it's a big hole. And uh, and uh, I think it was important that I understand that to to try and and tell people how people matter in other people's lives. So so yeah, that that was a that was a tough one. 
In the same vein of that question, have you ever gone into a story with a certain, some sort of preconceived notion, and then in the course of documenting the story, had your perceptions completely change? Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, you know. <laughs> I'm not sure I'll, th- I'll think of the examples of that, but I think of plenty of examples in which I've done research um, and... Uh, and some situation sounds totally enticing, and you get there, and you find that all these stories that have been done about it have been just plain out wrong. You know, no. that, and you find that somebody did a story, and then somebody else followed on that story, but they didn't actually go there, and then somebody else repeated the quotes, and then it just kind of ballooned, and you you finally get there, and you just say, no, this it's not the case. And I've I've had situations like that where I've spent a bunch of money going someplace to photograph something that turned out to be not true, and I just have to call up my editor and say, "Sorry, this one doesn't work. It's it's not so." You know, when you it, yeah, when you get an assignment like that, uh, like for instance, the the Scottish Moors assignment. Uh, yeah, what does that entail in terms of how long were you there shooting? How much time do they give you? How, how does you know how many? <laughs> How many frames are you going to end up shooting over the course of a <laughs> session like that? Um, usually, oh, that was, that story was about six or eight weeks in the field, broken up a little bit because I had some some uh, some personal things to come back to and attend to with a with an elderly uncle. Um, but you know, six or eight weeks in the field, and uh, wow. that's not uncommon. They're shorter than they used to be. When I started out, it was always 12 weeks, it seems like, you know. And, wow. And, uh, and that's, so it's a lot of time in the field. Um, but the, the 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 frames, yeah, you would usually think maybe 40,000 frames. On a, oh, holy story crap. Like that. <laughs> well, you know. Man. And how you many buy a new hard drive for every job? And how many? <laughs> and how many? How many of those frames then get turned in to the photo editor at Nat Geo? Yeah. How many to- do you turn in when you take forty thousand frames? How many you turn into the photo editor? All of them. Wow. Yeah. So some poor photo editor has to go through. I mean, that yeah. makes the job a whole lot easier. You don't have to go through and cull. You just turn oh, the whole no, batch you, in? You you both do. You both do. Uh, it's easier now. But So, yeah, Whitney Johnson back there uh, uh, got, gets 40,000 frames. And, uh, and oh, yeah, they, they go through them all. I mean, that, one of the reasons is that is that when you see all of that stuff, um, you can see shenanigans coming. <laughs> if a photo- right. if a photographer's cutting corners, you know you can kind of see as you go through frame by frame by frame, you could you could see somebody you know making something happen, you know. So ah. that's that's one of the veracity tests. They want to they want to see the raw footage, right? So. because then they can see what's going on. Still, now, do you do you find yourself do you find yourself uh, you know the stuff that gets left on the cutting room floor? I mean, six weeks on location, forty thousand frames. The images How many that are photos in this, are in a story? Like yeah, that's what I'm saying. The images in this story are fantastic, but I have to believe there's so many other images from this session that you just love right, right. that will never see the light of day. That's that's when that's when the book comes along, right? That's when you yeah, well, yeah, you hope. <laughs> yeah, you hope that there's a book down the road. But uh, yeah, you you have this uh, this situation in which yeah, there ought to be some good frames in there, you know, there if you're going to shoot that much, and there are, uh, but. Um, we end up a story like that might be twelve frames uh, to maybe sixteen or twenty, if, depending on how you would uh, lay the thing out. Uh, but you see, the the, the thing is, is uh, that 
you start laying it out, and every time you use one particular kind of picture, you just you eliminate all other similar pictures. You know, let's say that I was doing a story, as I did, a story on the Great Plains, and I had a picture of lightning bolts coming down over Car Hinge. You ever seen Car Hinge? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I believe I yeah, have. You know actually. the the Stonehenge made out of cars up there in the field, yeah, yeah. Oh, in a, in a corn yes. in a cornfield in Nebraska. Yeah, so yes. so say you have lightning bolts over Carhenge, and you decide you're going to use that picture. Well, that means you can't use any other pictures in the story with lightning bolts. So it doesn't no, it doesn't matter how good they are. All right. So th- so there go fifteen hundred frames right there. Pretty yeah, much. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> wow. So so you always have to be thinking that each picture has to be a definite step off from the rest of the pictures. And the reason you're shooting so many frames is not that you're going to cover so many different subjects, is that with each particular subject, you're going to try and raise the bar to some impossible level that you've never done before. You know, you're trying to eclipse anything that you can imagine that you've ever shot before and do something that even, you know, takes your own breath away. If you could, that would be the goal, you see. Do you feel like having done it so long that you are um, the best you've ever been at your art? I I, I think that on the next story I'm going to fail, and uh, and they're going to find out I I don't know what the hell I'm doing. <laughs> oh, that's Isn't so that nice amazing? to hear. That I love that. Like uh, so nice impo- to hear. Everybody feels imposter syndrome. I think, especially creatives. Yeah. Isn't that it scares the hell out of me? And I'm oh. uh, that's a great question yeah. I have about that. Yeah. Is um, what was the, how old were you the first time you shot for National Geographic? Well, it was in 1984. So, and I was uh, how was uh, I was born in 47. Can you do the math for me real quick there? <laughs> 37 30, years 35, old. 35, 30, yeah, something okay. like that. Yeah. So, you're thir- you're 35, you get the call. Right. Yeah, yeah. To shoot for National Geographic. Was that had you been doing so much other stuff that it was a natural progression or was it a big deal for you to get that call up? By the time I started freelancing, I had already done uh, six or seven books and uh, the Cuba Project, which had won some uh, international awards, and the high school book for Life Magazine, and uh, or that run or that ran in Life Magazine. So, so yeah, I, I'd kind of been around some, uh, and, but the the state of the situation where at that time was, I knew the folks at National Geographic, and they knew me. They they right. they knew what I could do. So it, so you weren't like it. You weren't like a kid getting called up for the minor leagues. Not, you were already established. Not quite. But but that first story that was on Atlanta. Actually, the first story was on the on the Great Salt Lake. But I did that while I was still working for the Denver Post. But the first one out of the shoot for when I was freelancing was Atlanta, and that was a real so so story. Uh, and it was a couple of years before I got the call again, and that was the Colorado River story that I alluded to before. And, and that one I did well. Yeah, that one I did well. And then I became Mr. Water Photographer. So then I did the, the Colorado <laughs> River and I did the Columbia. You're getting typecast. The Columbia River, the Mississippi River, and then the and water quality, and then the Ogallala Aquifer. Yeah. So. Well, let me tell you a quick tip, Jim, that I don't know if you figured out. Um, <laughs> if you don't want to ever do the dishes in your house, just do them badly once or twice, and then your wife will never make you do the dishes ever again. That's, that's, you know? that's, so, that's like, very if you, true. <laughs> if, you, if you don't want to shoot water anymore, just really just phone one in. Just really just do a bad job on a water story, and they'll be like, you know, he's really yeah. lost his step with the water stories. But you one see, of the things I, 
You see, what happened, though, was, you see, is that I did the Ogallala Aquifer story, and that was a real thankless story. Can you say that one more time? Yes, please say that one more time. (laughs) Ogallala Aquifer, okay? Ogallala Aquifer. Ogallala Aquifer. O G A L L A L A. I always have to think about it. Ogalala. Got it. Yeah. And that was Ogalala. a real thankful, uh, thankless story. And I did it, and I did it actually pretty well. Uh, and then Tom Kennedy, the director of photography at the time, called me back and he said, You know, because uh, he, he, he owed me. <laughs> he owed me because I pulled that story off. And uh, because the editor wanted to do it, and he's got to find somebody who can do it. So um, so he called me up and he said, I know you uh, wanted to do a story in England. And I said, I don't have a story on England, but how does Scotland sound? And I said, okay, yeah, I'd like to do Scotland. I didn't know anything at all about Scotland. And uh, so I got that assignment and I started in, and that was 20, uh, 23 years ago now. And uh, I went back and did more stories in Scotland, and then so Scotland became uh, uh, my forte, and now everybody thinks I'm the expert on Scotland. Um, so by doing that thankless story, by doing the dishes badly, <laughs> I got the Scotland gig. <laughs> well, that's pretty pretty excellent, and I know that that's sort of how we ended up getting you involved in the show. Now, I would love I know we're running a little short on time and I don't want to keep you. I have a couple of questions that I really want to get to that besides your shooting for National Geographic and you're traveling all the time, you have a gallery. Yeah. Also. Uh-huh. So to tell a little tell would you mind telling us a little bit about your gallery and how that works as as a business for you and like right now we were talking on the phone earlier and you said, "Look, I can't do the the podcast from my gallery. I have to go home because it's too busy here. So that sounds pretty cool. So I'd love to hear a little bit about what you do when you're home uh-huh. and, and how that gallery works. Yeah, right. So we so we live in this little town called Lindsborg, uh in, Can- in the middle of Kansas. Where I, you know, my wife and I both came from Kansas, so we moved back here from Denver. Um, and we have a storefront gallery. And in the gallery is my photography and which includes the big prints on the wall and the frame prints and uh, the, the the archival signed stuff, you know, um, and posters and greeting cards. And, and we print them all. I print them all myself. Um, and so we have about 400 uh, greeting cards out on the floor at any one time because it's a way of getting pictures out of the hard drives into a form that people can actually use them, you know, in their lives. That's right. awesome. Yeah, you know, so... And uh, so... And then we have my wife's jewelry that she does from her huge bead collection. And we have children's books. And uh, uh, all of these are are sort of codependent marketing schemes because uh, I know what actually happens is people come to the gallery to see the big pictures on the wall and then they go buy my wife's jewelry. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, $4,000. That's great. I'll take the $12 necklace. That's pretty much it, yes. And and, uh, it's depressing, though, when they come in and they don't even look at the pictures on the wall. They just go straight for the jewelry, you see. Uh, They don't know what they're missing. And then the children's books are wonderful because, well, they're fun to have around. And our assistant, Brianna, has three little kids. And so she curates the children's books. And they're all these great things, you know, uh, of like, you know, Goodnight Moon. And and I keep a few favorites of mine around like... uh, where the red fern grows. I don't know if you guys read that when you were. Oh, I read that in school. Yeah, Absolutely, yeah. The, the one with the dogs that die. Yeah, yeah really no, no. One. Don't yeah, tell. Okay. Don't give the giveaway there. Spoiler alert! That book came out in 1942. 
So, but the great the great thing about the children's books, I always figure, is that sooner or later these kids are going to have a credit card and they're going to come back. You see, so we 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 start them out early, you know, buying things from us, you know, and figure. Well, that- I would love that as <laughs> as a parent of a to- I have a toddler and another on the way, and we travel all the time, and we would love to go into more galleries and interesting places but we always have our two-year-old with us yeah and so to have a, a section for a kid to be entertained oh, sure. while while i you know that's kind of a cool idea at least for me i know i may be in a very small percentage of potential but i wanted to ask you too about, oh by the way we, we we also keep dog biscuits so we're dog friendly you know that's, oh <laughs> in the gallery that's, that's awesome. right yeah how i want to live in his you, town yeah, absolutely. How do you cultivate which of your many, many, many thousands of images you put in the gallery? Oh. How do you choose which ones go on the wall? Like, do you just pick your personal favorites? And as a sub-question, do you have the ability to print and sell your work if it's been printed in National Geographic, or do they have exclusive rights to your images that they publish? Right, right. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll answer that in reverse order then. Yeah. Yes, because we own the copyright to our images. A, you do not National Geographic, that's so right. you're licensing. Now, is that how the shooters for National Geographic make their living? Is on the licensing fees from Nat Geo for the images, or do they also pay you to shoot? Very, very often, it's almost impossible for an editorial photographer today to make a living just shooting, just holding a camera in their hand. They almost right. always have to have several income streams uh, to, uh, uh, to to make a living out of it. And the, the and the actual taking pictures on assignment is only uh, a part of it for us. You know, maybe twenty five percent. So, right. So okay. right. So, but then the 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 picking of the images for the wall. Now, so we've had the gallery for fifteen years. We've got a fair amount of experience uh, at that, and it's the similar kind of experience that you get from Instagram. Because okay. because many times you put up a picture on Instagram and and you think it's going to be great, and it's just a dud. And the, but after after a while, you start getting some feel of what it is that people really like. And the, the the most significant thing is that what you put on the gallery wall is not the same as what you put on the pages of the magazine, because the, those pictures have a job to do in an editorial story. What you put right. what you put on the gallery wall are the kinds of things that people can live with. That that right, if right, you if right. you, if you intend them to buy them, you know <laughs> they may not want to look at a, a framed photo of a starving Somalian child for the rest of their life, but they would like a beautiful vista from the desert or something it, like that. Those would be two totally different uh, purposes. It, it, exactly right, and I think the same photographer can do both in their career. That's desperately important to do the starving kid in Somalia and get that picture out in front of people uh, so that they can d- do something. The picture can do some real work. You know, it makes a difference. Somebody actually sees that picture and they go send some money. They do something, you know. That's that's what you want to have happen. And you may do your Instagram following with a whole bunch of eye candy pictures so that every once in a while you can throw in the starving kid in Somalia and reach a big audience. You know, just just, wow. just practical kind of how are you going to get this image uh, message out to, to lots of people. Um, what do you love the most about it then? Is it the... Is it self-fulfilling, or do you feel like that what you do as an editorial photographer is a mission? Because it sounds like you almost approach it as if you have a job to do to tell important stories that people don't see unless you show them. I think it, I think it's 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 kind of all things. I don't think you have to decide that it's one or the other. 
that that you can love photography, you can love cameras, you can love gadgets, you can also be uh, intimately involved uh, in the issues, you can make practical decisions about when and where your photographs may actually make a difference, so that you sort of you don't you don't have to be out there standing on the soapbox every day all day, you know, because if you did, right. you would actually be counterproductive. Um, and you, and you you do get to enjoy <laughs> what you do, you know, kind of every once in a while. It isn't like you have to turn yourself uh, uh, into 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 some hermit, you know. Who right. <laughs> you're, you're not working in a cubicle. You're you're doing really cool work. And yeah, you're going to really cool places. Yeah, you got to you got to you got to sneak some vegetables in with the macaroni and cheese. Is yeah. basically what, <laughs> yeah, exactly. what you're doing. Exactly. That's how I feed Boo-Ray. Yeah. yeah, and and I think I think photographers. Can can do that in their in their in their life, you know. And I don't think they all have to be professionals. And I I really don't think they have to all be uh, shooting uh, high end digital SLRs. I mean, I teach I teach uh, iPhone photography workshops at Santa Fe uh, Santa Fe workshops. Um, I I I, some, I would I would go to that in a second. Some of the, yes, I'm going to that now. Some Give of the me a ticket. Some of the trips I do for National Geographic expeditions I've done only on iPhone. I left everything at home. And did only iPhone, um, and that was published work. Uh, see, so yeah, I think we've published some of that stuff. Yeah, uh, so, that's cool. So, uh, but but it's 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 great. It it for the social media side, and I think you know, for instance, hey, here's the odd thing. You see, you always used to get this phrase. You know, somebody would say, "When I grow up, I want to work for National Geographic magazine." Now I actually hear actually hear people saying they don't say that. They say, you know, when I grow up, I want to be on Nat Geo Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> they don't even which make is, a connection. Is, yeah, right. National Geographic. Then that's a, that's a whole other brand, Nat Geo. Yeah, right, yeah. right. So, yeah. Um, would you would you reckon that maybe the uh, the Nat Geo Instagram when it, which which I follow which I followed for several years because I love the, the all of the mm-hmm. quality of photography there but wouldn't you reckon that the uh, the millions of followers that they have there that if an image gets published on the Nat Geo Instagram it actually gets more people see it than if it gets published in the magazine <laughs> very true <laughs> very very true yeah I mean so we have three and a half million followers. I mean, as subscribers to the magazine, and we have something like eighty million followers on Instagram. So wow. yeah, you, that's right. You put up a you put up a picture, and within uh, six hours, you have eight hundred thousand likes. I mean, and do you have access we, to that Instagram? You said that they, they cultivate their own, or do they ever let you pick what goes on there? The in, the national the, the Nat Geo Instagram feed, the 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 big number one, has been built by the photographers. Uh, and they have given us the freedom to post what we want, uh, and with with some limitations as you know how many we can post a day or a week or you know time in between and all that kind of stuff. But what you're seeing is Nat Geo photographers deciding what they want to post, uh, and so it's coming straight from a photographer. That is so cool. I didn't know that. That no. makes me like it even more. That's awesome. It, okay, and so it, cool. It's very democratic. It's very much you're you're getting the straight feed from uh, from folks, um, and uh, and it's I think there's a lesson to be learned from the you know huge success. I mean the only the only people who beat us out are Justin Bieber and and the Kardashians, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but we uh, you know we're not. Well, as, if you're going to lose to somebody, I mean, we're, why not? we're not as good as Kim Kardashian, but we're better than Chloe. 
You know, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice. It's well, nice everyone to know knows. Your everyone knows that Kim's better than Chloe. Yeah, well, okay, Kim. yeah. So, <laughs> okay, listen. Before we before we let you go, we have to ask the question, and 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 I'm you get all the time, but I know we'll be killed for not asking the question. How does one become a National Geographic photographer? <laughs> well, the problem with that question is that is the uh, the answer keeps changing. Uh, the way I started out was everybody uh, from my generation started out in newspapers and then they eventually uh, got to the place that they were doing so much freelance work for magazines they they couldn't keep their day job and then they uh, and then they somehow or another morphed over into National Geographic and that doesn't really happen because the newspaper world isn't what it was so today it's more likely that you have people who uh, who uh, started say the say the people who have been there ten years now. They would be more like Paul Nicklin, who started out as a biologist and and recognized that he needed to tell the story of undersea biology in a more interesting way, and so he became a photographer and now has become you know this this gigantic success at doing that. Mm. So generally, people would start off with some area of expertise: anthropology, archaeology, uh, cultures, something like this. You see. Uh, and then uh, and and then become a photographer. They almost always anybody doing it today has to have the body of knowledge, the area of expertise. They have to be somebody like Joel Sartori, who uh, who is the embodiment of endangered species. Say absolutely, okay. his work's fantastic. Right, yeah. right. So, but so the but but the first stage platforms where people start to craft their you know, de- develop their craft. And their storytelling abilities almost today is almost always social media. So I I would say you know and, and in that regard it's totally democratic and you can go out there and open up your Instagram account and start and start uh, start doing stuff. And so I think most of the next generation is coming. First stages would be through social media. Next stage would be people doing projects that they end up taking to the the various festivals around the world where they eventually get seen in some portfolio review by some editor who says, uh, "Could we maybe we might want to try you out um, on uh, on a small story?" So it's still go no, photograph it's no, a river. Yeah. So it's still it's getting a getting a job uh, shooting for Nat Geo is still the Carnegie Hall of photography. Uh, you know, it's it's you. Practice, practice, practice. <laughs> no one just gets picked out of the out of the heather to be a photographer because they got lucky. You, it takes right. a career, and no, and nobody. You should understand that nobody, nobody can get an assignment with a portfolio. A portfolio is too easy to pull off. Oh. You, you can't. You, everybody can make up a nice portfolio, twenty pictures. I mean, those are a dime a dozen. Uh, what you can't tell from a portfolio if so is if somebody can go out and do it again. And the only way to tell that is if they do it consistently year over year. If they if they can if they can come back time and again and show you new stuff that's that's surprising you each and every time, then you start to get the idea that ah, not only do they have real talent, but they have uh, real work ethic. Uh, they have real interest in subjects that we're interested in. Uh, and um, and they could probably do it on demand in the time frame that we can afford. What Which has got to be a very 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 specific skill set because you got to say you, I can drop you in with a bunch of uh, 
wealthy Scottish landowners and you go deer hunting with them and you have to get something or you have to go photograph the Kalalagwala River Basin <laughs> and get something. You have to be able to see and feel and empathize and also make it happen if it's, you know, make it, make it happen every single time. You can't come back and go, well, they were just really boring and they didn't do anything, so I didn't get any good photos. Mm. I mean, that cannot happen. You can't, you can't say that. You know, you should have, no. if that's if that's happening, you should have been raising a flag to a picture editor. You should have had the experience of doing these things to raise the flag with your picture editor early enough to say, hey, this isn't working um, and we should either do something else or we should uh, we should can this. Uh, and uh, that they, they expect that sort of level of, of uh, craft uh, and experience. And yes, it, right. it is craft, uh, and you can't emphasize enough that the, 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 there's the photographic skills, but then there's also the storytelling skills, uh, the people skills, the research skills. All those things have to come together in one person, and uh, it's great fun. And it's and it's great fun developing those skills, uh, and I've been, I've enjoyed it enormously. Um, but it doesn't it doesn't come together uh, in one person all the time. It gives me great comfort uh, in the modern age that while there are so many standards uh, in in the world that have slipped by the wayside, Life Magazine used to be considered you know the gold mm-hmm. standard for. For photography, every Time Magazine was the gold standard for weekly news, uh, and so many of these things with the with the internet and, and and everything have passed away for us that we don't have those anymore. But Nat Geo is still the gold standard when it comes to incredible photography all over the world. They're still, you know, even the modern, even though now to them it's just Nat Geo, they don't even know it's National Geographic, but still it's the gold standard. You still have something in our world, at least in the photography world, that everyone will point to and go, that's the top. The, the work mm-hmm. that you see there, that's the work that is going to be just, you're not going to see better work than that anywhere. And it makes me feel good to know that it's still here. <laughs> you know, to to know that we still yeah. have this 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 thing that we can look to and say that's the top. We know that's the top. You know, and uh, and it must and it's just such a pleasure to have you on the show today. Well, and yes, Jim, thank you, man. Well, I I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it, and uh, and and I've appreciated the opportunity to work with all those people back at National Geographic who have kept that alive. The thing that you're talking about. You know the Sarah Leans of the world, who's the director of photography there. Yeah, it's 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 nice. They're 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 still there, and they still got you know this impossible standard, uh, and they're still impossible to please. You know, but at least that <laughs> me that means that that you know you can't go in with schlock and get anybody to buy it. <laughs> what's your what's your website and what's your Instagram feed? Oh, uh, my website is jimrichardsonphotography.com. There's a creative one for you. And uh, my Instagram feed is, feed is uh, jimrichardsonng, Jim Richardson National Geographic. You get it? Yeah, okay. Ah, <laughs> good one. I got to no. be honest, I didn't. I actually, when I started following you, I was like, I guess he had to put NG on there for some reason, and I actually didn't get it. <laughs> it's, 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 and I should have? No, it's... It, 
It's, it's not creative at all. It's it's rather pathetic, but I'm stuck with it now. So yeah, but I should have figured that out. I mean, come on, it's you know, oh, that's pretty obvious now that you mention it. Uh, all yeah. right, well, listen, we've uh, we got to let you. We've kept you way too long, and we're so thankful uh, that you would come on the podcast today. I just more good information, I think, in this podcast probably than the last year combined for us. Well, then the, all, then all of the other 152 episodes before yeah, this. Yeah, tell uh, that tell that to your last guest. I'd like to hear that phone call. <laughs> Oh, so we uh, we will don't Last uh, guest, don't you, run you off. Uh, stay right there. Uh, we have to do a little you know sign off thing here and 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 promote ourselves a little bit. But don't run off on us, Jim. Uh, as soon as we're done, so we can say goodbye to you proper. Uh, I'm not going to do a whole list of the stuff we normally promote, Gary. I'm just going to say that uh, this show drops on Monday, and IPC is in full force uh, right now. So if you're not, we're leaving uh, in like two days. Yeah, go. we're yeah we're from recording this. We're leaving in a couple of days, but this is coming out. The IPC is actually going on right now. If you're listening. To this on the day that it, it comes out. So go to stream.theipc.org and watch the International Photographic Competition and watch IPC Live with your host, me, Bure Perry, and Gary Hughes will be on there as well. And if you watch the judging, listen for Gary's voice because you know he's going to be talking and challenging some prints uh, during the judging. First time judge. I'm yeah, pretty excited yeah. to So that's going to be uh, that's going to be a lot of fun. So check that out right now, stream.theipc.org. Anything you need to uh, talk about, Gary? Yeah, I got August uh, 19th and 20th. I'll be in Riverside, California at the uh, Image One uh, Expo doing a demonstration for Promark Brands in the booth. And then, uh, you know, way off in the distance in January, I'll be uh, speaking and judging at the uh, SWPP convention in London. And uh, you can find that. Just go to the societies.org on the worldwide internets. All right. You can find me at bourreperry.com. You can find Gary at hughesfioretti.com. Yes, you can. You can find our website at photobombpodcast.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash photobombpodcast. And we will see you back here next week. See you later. 